This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp helps businesses grow. If you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business, MailChimp makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, and no credit card required. For more sophisticated marketers, pro features like multivariate testing offer the same power you'd expect in an enterprise marketing platform in an intuitive, easy-to-use interface. Learn more at MailChimp.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and on this week's episode, we'll be hearing from Moby. He's most well-known as a musician and DJ, but if you dig a little deeper, you discover the photographer, author, and animal rights activist. For those of you unfamiliar with his work, this song that I'm speaking over right now is one of his most popular singles, Porcelain, from his 1999 studio album, Play. His own records have sold over 20 million copies worldwide, and he's also produced and remixed scores of other artists, including David Bowie, Metallica, The Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, and many others. In the spring of 2014, Moby spoke to Creative Mornings Los Angeles on the theme of freedom. Unfortunately, we were unable to connect with him for a Skype call, but the Creative Mornings Los Angeles chapter host, John Setson, was willing to take his place. John actually goes way back with Creative Mornings founder, Tina Roth-Eisenberg. Tina and I are kind of old buddies. Uh, I used to have a studio in a 20 J Street when I lived in New York, and uh, Tina was in 10, and everyone kind of knew Tina in Dumbo. By the way, for all you non-New Yorkers, Dumbo is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's actually an acronym that stands for Down Under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass. Uh, this is back in like 2003, four. Uh, ish, you know, or maybe 2005, I don't know. But everyone knew Tina. She was Tina. She had this big laugh. And uh, I started going to Creative Mornings and I loved it. And um, then I was planning on moving out to Los Angeles and I asked her if um, I could do Creative Mornings in Los Angeles. And it wasn't in any other cities yet. It was just in New York. And she said she'd been wanting to try and expand it, but she wanted someone that she knew that she could trust and to kind of be the guinea pig. So I was happily that um, and so, yeah, so I started Creative Mornings out here in 2010. Wow. And I think I am currently the, aside from Tina, the, the longest serving chapter host. And every month, I think I've done my last one because I'm exhausted. <laughs> and then every time I do it again, I just remember how much I like it. So I'm probably in it for, for life at this point. Yeah, seriously. So you're like the early adopter. I am, yes. Yes. <laughs> that was me. Yeah, it was crazy because I, I started the one here and then I think like San Francisco was next. And then, I don't know, like a year later, there were like 12 chapters and now we're like, we're at what now? Like we're over 140 and every time, and then I go look at now we're close to 150. It's just, it's crazy. And I mean, I always say this and I totally believe it. Tina is the personification of Creative Mornings, this amazing open, welcoming, inclusive person that is just always has their arms open, bring anyone in, give out knowledge, hook people up. It's just totally Tina. And so those are those are the qualities you want you want in a person. And I think that, you know, Creative Mornings has all those qualities as well. And that's why it's been so successful. As the LA chapter host, there's really no denying the potential that LA has for speakers. What brought Moby to your attention? 
Well, I read this article that he wrote for The Guardian about why he left New York to move to L.A. Um, so he could have the freedom to fail. And it was really great because people love to shit on Los Angeles, but it's actually a really great place. And to have someone who's such a New York kind of icon like Moby to stick up for L.A., and especially in a way that was like, I left New York because I want this. And I think that's why, I mean, I know so many people are moving here right now, but he talked about the freedom to fail. And I read that article and I was like, I got to get this guy to come speak at Creative Mornings. When I looked at the list of themes, I was like, freedom, that's perfect. He was sort of like a dream scenario uh, as a speaker. And one quick note about John, who we're speaking to on the phone right now. Before he moved out to LA, when he lived in New York, he ran a small design company and their main client was Sony Music. So he and Moby actually crossed paths way back when. I can't remember where I met him. I think I met him at like a release party for someone. I was a fan of his. I used to have a, a, a record of his back in the day in college called um, Thousand, which was a song that went to 1,000 BPM. And, um, and I thought he's an interesting dude, you know? He was a New York, real New York icon. He was like, totally. you know, he had that that tea brand. He had that uh, that vegan cafe down in, in uh, the Lower East Side. Uh-huh. You know, he was an interesting guy. He was just such an incredibly nice individual. Did he remember meeting you? No, not at all. So I don't think so. I, I don't even think I said to him, hey, I once met you at this thing in New York. Right. I can't remember what it was. You and I were talking casually earlier before this interview started, and you mentioned something about Moby's talk kind of meandering, and I was wondering what the story was behind that. Yeah, so he showed up, and we went upstairs to this crazy green room. He goes, hey, so you gave me all those notes, and I forgot all of them. I have them on my counter at home. <laughs> And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, you want to get up and interview me? And I said, absolutely not, because I've done that before, and I really dislike that. And so um, we spent about 10 minutes sort of writing an outline of stuff he could talk about. And uh, I told him to talk about the article a lot. And then he got up, and he just started kind of uh, riffing on the room. And then he kind of did his talk, and people really liked it. And, you know, he talked for a while. I will say the one thing that I thought was super cool about him is I had given him an out at the beginning, because usually after the... Q&A, when people start leaving, people come up and speak to the speaker. And I knew he would be inundated with people. And so I said, hey, man, when I get up to do this, thank yous, you can kind of duck out the back door if you want. And that morning at the event, he was like, no, this looks like a really nice crowd of people. This looks really cool. And I'm happy to hang out for a while and talk. And he stayed for like 45 minutes afterwards and just talked to anyone. I think he signed some stuff. He was just like really just super cool and generous with his time. And so with that, we'll let you have it. This is Moby from the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, California from the spring of 2014 on the Creative Morning's global theme of freedom. Oh, and also let me give you the obligatory foul language disclaimer. Heads up for a few choice words. Hello? One, two. By the way, while you were talking, I was, I was looking at you and listening, at you, listening to you, but I was also looking at this crazy Freemason stained glass <laughs> and trying to figure out what it means. And I was, of course, like, and I was looking at this big crazy chair and thinking how if I were really courageous, I would just, I would just sit here and say nothing. <laughs> or, by any chance, do you remember? Back in the days of um, 
Christian televangelism. I don't know if that still goes on. But there was this one Christian televangelist, and I hope someone here remembers him, because he was amazing, because I don't even know how he was Christian, because he never talked about religion. He was just this old white guy with like a grizzly beard, and he looked like, like a homeless crystal meth addict. And he would just sit there and every now and then make these pronouncements. He was like, because man is incomplete. Remember that. And you would just watch Transfix. I kind of, it looks, reminded me of like Marlon Brando as Kurtz at the end of Apocalypse Now. Um, so, I, on one hand, I love public speaking. Um, which is strange, because isn't public speaking supposed to be most people's number one fear? And maybe I'm just such like a solipsistic narcissist that I don't really acknowledge the existence of other people. Um, but so when they asked me to speak, um, first of all, I didn't assume that anyone would show up. Because I just thought like the people who don't have jobs are probably still asleep. And the people who do have jobs are at work. So I was like, I had this vision, like I was coming down here, of, uh, you know that scene in Spinal Tap, when they do the in-store, and there's no one there, like it's just them sitting behind a table, and there's just, there's, there's no one there, and I actually had that experience once in Washington, D.C., I did an in-store, and two people showed up, and the employees of the store had to, like, they rounded up the custodial staff to come and get autographs, just to make me feel better, and so... When being asked to speak here, the sort of, the brief that I received was really good and really vague. It was freedom and creativity. And that could mean so many different things. And I wrote down a whole bunch of notes, and I was all prepared, and I live up in Beechwood Canyon, and my notes are currently sitting on my kitchen table. <laughs> so I, re I parked, and I realized, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> my notes are up there. Um, but I also, like one of my hopes, because I'm ostensibly an altruistic hippie, is if I'm here, I want to sort of try and, if I can, be helpful, be of service. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to, at some point pretty soon, get to a Q&A, because I've been to lots of public events where people speak, and you realize, like, the narcissistic guy sitting at the front is talking about stuff that has no relevance to anyone who's, who's listening. And... So that's why I didn't want to speak, you know, narcissistically and self-involvedly for too long about things that would have no relevance to anyone here. Um, but some of the things, and I assume, okay, just as a, a quick show of hands, how many people here are involved in some sort of creative discipline? Okay, so everybody. <laughs> how, how many people here struggle with creativity? Okay, see, this is, and that's one of the things I really wanted to talk about because um, in my upbringing, I had a very, very strange upbringing. I grew up poor white trash in what's arguably the wealthiest town in the United States, Darien, Connecticut. How many people here are familiar with Darien, Connecticut? Okay, so Darien is famous for a few things. Um, one, it's been represented in movies three times. The first was the movie Gentleman's Agreement about anti-Semitism. Um, the second was the movie Anti-Mame, and Darien was where the horrible snobs lived. And the third is The Stepford Wives is based in Darien as well. 
but it's also really odd in that it's created more oddball public figures than any other, like per capita, than any other place on the planet. And when I, so the list of people who are from Darien, population 15,000, um, Ann Coulter, which isn't surprising, um, Gus, Gus Van Zandt, Robert Downey Jr., Steve-O from Jackass, <laughs> Topher Grace, Chloe Sevigny, Kate Bosworth, and a few others I'm not thinking of. So there's something weird in the water, or I don't know what it was, but that, um, and I got really lucky, because I grew up poor white trash there, but my mom was an artist, and all of the teachers that I had growing up encouraged me to sort of be as unconventional and creative as possible. Um, <clears throat> and that was, I guess, the first sort of, in my upbringing, the first sense of creative freedom that I had is my mother, my aunts and uncles, they were all artists, and they created for me this perfect Goldilocks environment of creativity where I was neither told that being creative was a waste of time nor was I irrationally lauded or praised for creativity. I was just simply expected to do something creative. And if I did something that was good, they said, oh, that's good. And if I did something that was bad, they would say, oh, that's, you can do better. Because I've noticed with a lot of my friends who struggle with creativity, they, they have these internal editors. Um, and I guess we all do to an extent. Or the internal self-critic. And I don't know where it comes from, whether it comes from critical parents, whether it comes from an unsupportive educational environment growing up, but it seems like that's, for many people, that's their biggest sort of inhibitory factor, is they, they criticize themselves almost a priori, like before they start working on their creative project, the critical voice kicks in. And, and it's, it's so heartbreaking and so unnecessary because I've seen, you know, maybe it's a poor choice of words, but like so many creative projects stillborn because the creator doubts themselves, because the creator has too, too loud of a self-critical voice. And like that, that's... <laughs> um, by the way, and so that was... So that freedom, and it's hard for me to talk about because I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I... I'm so eternally grateful for the fact that I grew up in this environment where I was just simply allowed to be creative and encouraged to be creative. Because um, I have a lot of friends also whose parents would say, you know, oh, <laughs> maybe, do you have any Xanax for him or something? Is that... <laughs> uh, you know, very critical parents who would say, like, you know, you're wasting your time with your art or music or writing or filmmaking. Um, and, and so they, they carry that voice with them. And it's such a shame. And selfishly, I feel like when, when people inhibit their own creative process, it makes my life poorer. You know, because when people are able to sort of indulge their, you know, their creativity, it makes all of our lives better. Um, I mean, you think of like how rich my life is because of other people's creative output. And if they had doubted themselves, if they had inhibited themselves and not shared their work with the world, we wouldn't have Marcel Duchamp or George Gershwin or the Beatles or William Faulkner or Walker Percy or 
Steven Spielberg. I mean, if, if these people had had critical, create, I mean, critical parents or grew up in a critical environment, the world would be a very different place. And so that's... I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, I guess, but it's just this thing that I keep coming up against in other people and their approach to the creative process. And I just wonder what can be done for people who have creative blocks to sort of move past them. Um, I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy probably works really well, some sort of exposure therapy. But what I've noticed is <clears throat> for a lot of people who are very self-critical creatively, it comes down to when they start editing. Um, and I've noticed with my friends who are very self-critical, they edit before they actually do anything. You know, again, like a priori, like they assume that no matter what they do, it's not going to be good. And so they don't even bother doing it. Or they start working on something, they get it to its infancy, they look at it, they're embarrassed of it, they don't like it, they assume it's terrible, and then they edit. And I think that one of my only, I think I probably only have two gifts, three gifts as a creative person. One is I only edit before I share things with other people. So creatively, when I'm in my studio, whether it's like writing or making music or making stupid little films or what have you, I only edit when I'm going to share things with the public. And even then, I should probably edit a little bit more. But <clears throat> I think that's served me really well where when I'm writing, I don't ever for a second think about whether what I'm doing is good. I simply enjoy writing and give myself like complete, complete license to do whatever seems whatever appeals to me. And oftentimes, I end up making terrible stuff. But then hopefully, over time, I figure out, oh, this is terrible. I don't need to share it with anyone. But it's the freedom that I have to, to make terrible stuff that also increases the chances that sometimes I'll end up making something good. And, and I just wish that I could <clears throat> help, like, somehow help other people to find that freedom. To find the freedom to like indulge whatever creative flight of fancy you have, and don't be you know there's just no utility in being self-critical. I guess because I've had, I've known some people who could benefit from a little bit of self-criticism. <laughs> you know, like especially I went to a SUNY Purchase for a while, and they had an experimental film program, which was great, but there were some people who honestly could have benefited from inhibiting themselves just a little bit when you have like an 18 minute film of a washing machine you know or in the world of music like you know and we've all had that experience where like you go to see something and they're like the band like the guy's doing like an eight minute guitar solo and you just think to yourself maybe you could have really benefited from having a more critical parent at some point um, or better medication so, so that was one of the things, and I'd, I'd be really interested to hear when, when we do Q&A from you guys about what creative blocks you come up against and what sort of inhibits your own creative freedom. Um, and also, if you have any things that you found that have enabled you to sort of move past creative blocks. Because um, like one, thing, one thing that I've found... Oh, I also I said, so my, my three gifts creatively, which just sounds so self-important... Um, but one is I don't know how to do anything else. And that, like, 
is for me so important because I never had a fallback plan. Like I never, I was like, I, do, I don't, I was a philosophy major. So basically, if I wasn't a musician, I'd be, you know, a sad vegan working at Burger King. Um, or, you know, and so it really helped, like, when I left home, when I first left home, I was living in an abandoned factory, I was functionally homeless, but I was really happy because I had free electricity for my equipment, and I had no fallback plan. It wasn't like, oh, I'll do this for a couple of years and then go be an accountant, or do this for a couple of years and then, you know, go to law school. I literally was like, I'll just keep doing this, and worst case scenario, I spend my entire life living in this abandoned factory, which didn't seem all that bad, because I had free electricity, and sometimes in the winter they turned the heat on to keep the pipes from bursting. Um, and it was, but there's an emancipation that comes, along, comes with that, just being, like, not caring, just being so contented with what you're doing that the external circumstances don't really matter. Um, and I think the only third gift I have is just a profound, comprehensive love for what I do, where it's nice if I have an audience, but that's not the goal. You know, it's nice if something generates viable and lucrative revenue streams, but again, that's not the goal. That's just sort of like these are accidental byproducts of this process that I love more than anything. Like whenever I've tried to take a vacation, the only thing I think about on vacation is coming home to work more because that's, and I'm so grateful for that. And I, and I do think, not to be all new agey and weird, but I think that's everyone's birthright, is allowing yourself to find the things that you love and dedicate your life to doing them. Because we're only around for a short period of time. And I sort of asked myself this question, like on my deathbed, what do I want to remember? And do I want to remember worry and anxiety and responsibility? Or do I want to remember giving my life over to things that I truly loved. Um, which, of course, is easier said than done for a lot of people, but... Okay, so my notes that I wrote 30 seconds before coming here. Um, another thing regarding freedom. In, when I was a philosophy major, there's this concept that was presented to me in Philosophy 101, which is the is-ought fallacy. And the is-ought fallacy basically states that it's fallacious to maintain that because something is, it ought to be. And I feel this is another big inhibitory um, variable when it comes to people's creative processes. They, they judge their creativity based on what has previously existed and the sort of restrictions and limitations that would come from that. And the is-ought fallacy, when you look at it and apply any scrutiny to it, it falls apart in an instant. Like the is-ought fallacy was just used to justify women not being allowed to vote. You know, pre, pre the suffragette movement, the justification for women not being allowed to vote was that women hadn't been allowed to vote, therefore they should not be allowed to vote. Um, you know, pre-Civil War, the justification for slavery was, well, we've had slaves, therefore we should continue to have slaves, which logically and ethically we realize is really fallacious logic. Um, but then we apply that to our creative processes, and, and you realize how unnecessarily restrictive that is. You know, like if someone had gone to Jerry Lee Lewis in the mid-50s and said, oh, white people have never played black music, therefore they shouldn't play black music. Um, or if you'd gone to Steve Jobs and said, computer companies don't make MP3 players, therefore they shouldn't make MP3 players. Um, 
or gone to, what's his name, Starbucks guy. Who's, what's that? Yeah. And gone to him and said like, oh, coffee is this cheap, shitty beverage that you buy at Dunkin' Donuts. There's no such thing as fancy court. You know, people in America don't care about coffee. And it's allowing yourself to not be bound by precedent and to not be bound by any restrictions. And a lot of these restrictions I find, at least in myself, are very insidious, where I'm not even necessarily aware that they're there. And like in the world of music, I mean, the number of times, I mean, an is ought fallacy applied to music would have been in 1984 to say, oh, white people have never bought hip-hop records. Prior to 1984, that was the case. Um, prior to a few years ago, oh, dance culture is dead, and people don't want to go to big dance events. Um, so you can see, so it's just this question for every person here, is like how these blocks, these inhibitions that you might have, like what are they, and how do they restrict your own creative process? And I guess, because the reason they invited me to speak here, and I haven't really addressed this, uh, instead I've just been rambling like a crazy new age resident of Southern California. But the reason they asked me to speak is I wrote this article for Creative Time and The Guardian um, comparing and contrasting life in LA and life in New York. Um, not surprisingly, my friends in New York didn't like it very much. Um, and <clears throat> whereas I will actually get stopped on the street, like I'll be walking down Franklin and someone will stop me and they'll say, I just moved to New York. Thank you so much for writing that article. I've sent it to every, I mean, I've just moved to LA. I've sent it to all my family and friends in New York and they all hate you. Um, but it's one of, I mean, there are many reasons why I moved to LA. And one of them was there is a culture of failure here that I find really liberating. Um, and what I mean by that is <laughs> everybody in LA fails. We just do. Like IMDB is like a testament to failure. Like, like pick, your, pick your favorite actor and look up their IMDB page. And you're like, oh, they did that? Like, it's just every, mu every musician, I guess Jimmy Iovine is the only person in L.A. who has never failed. Um, but everybody else, we fail. And there's something remarkably liberating about that. Whereas growing up in Connecticut, people in Connecticut don't fail. Like, if you fail, you're banished to some island somewhere, or like sent to a work camp in Montana. And like, or like looking, and it's one of the reasons why I left New York. I still love New York. I was born in New York. But the New York that I grew up with was this incredibly open, dysfunctional mess of a city. This is going back to like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where you could do whatever you want. And the rents were low, and no one cared. You know, so if you wrote a play and it failed, who cares? You write your next play. And then what happened in New York, unfortunately, is this culture of success on steroids just has taken over the whole city, where experimental artists can't afford their rent. And it seems like people, the criteria by which people's creative output is judged is, is it immediately successful? And it is a very stifling creative community and stifling environment, I think, has arisen from that. And then you come to LA and people, it's just like a shit show here. <laughs> and no one really knows what they're doing. 
and people experiment left and right, and everyone's working on a few different projects because you know most of them are never going to happen and they're going to fail. <laughs> and there's something, I mean, it's unstable, and I, I wish for all of you that you would have stability and success, but it's, it's the sort of the mess, the miasma, the dystopian sort of ambiguity of LA that I find really fecund and like this, it just creates this remarkable creative environment. People can do anything. And if, as I guess it's sort of like worst case scenario, like worst case scenario in New York, if you fail in an instant, you can't pay your rent and you have to leave. Worst case scenario in LA, like you fail, hey, you move to North Hollywood. You know, like it's not, you know, you can, you can always kind of, you can get by. Which of course, sometimes like this happened in New York in the 70s and 80s. Like the New York version of that in 1978 would be, oh, like if you fail in Manhattan, they exile you to Brooklyn. Um, and now, clearly I was just in Brooklyn and you can, a, t a townhouse in Cobble Hill is $15 million. So that doesn't allow struggling artists much room for failure and experimentation. Whereas here, uh, I mean, I'm just going to be tautological and repeat myself, but there is, for all of LA's shortcomings, it's so utterly unique, both in history and, I mean, I can't think of another city that is solely based or almost exclusively based on people's creative output, you know? Like, the leaders of our city are people who are basically dysfunctional artists who figured out how to be slightly less dysfunctional. And, I mean, even Eric Garcetti, our mayor, he's a jazz pianist. He writes his own piano compositions. And, um, well, I, I could say some things that would get him in trouble, but I won't. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm just, I'm a, I mean, sometimes, sometimes L.A. has too much freedom, you know, and it feels unstructured and it feels chaotic, but there is a looseness and a freedom here that I find really, I don't know, disconcerting but empowering. And I think, I think I might have been rambling on enough. I'm really, really curious to hear what you guys have to say. Um, and I guess the last thing I want to say is understanding the difference for me between internal and external creative freedom. And internal freedom are, would be like allowing myself the, the mental space to be creative. And then external freedom is what we were just talking about, like, you know, London and New York versus Los Angeles. Not, I mean, they're all wonderful places, but if, if you're constantly worrying about paying $10,000 a month rent, it's not going to give you a lot of space in which to experiment and be creative. And, and also, we live in this environment where... Like, one of the reasons I left New York is I would go to parties and I would meet, you know, lawyers. And I like lawyers and, and guys who start hedge funds. Like, God bless, I want them to go on and live happy lives, but, like, that's, they're not my people. Whereas I come here and you go out and you meet writers, directors, producers, musicians, these people who wake up in the morning and, for better or worse, think about what they're going to make. And I find that, I find it really inspiring to just live in a dysfunctional, crumbling city filled with people who make things. So, um, I think that's all I have. If anybody has any questions or comments, that, thanks. Moby does a solid Q&A with the audience, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, 
we've got to take care of some business. And today's episode is also made possible by Hover, domains made simple. I spoke with Hover user Gina Trapani, the co-founder of a company called ThinkUp, which just launched their new product, MakerBase. MakerBase is like an IMDB for apps and websites and digital projects and, and artwork. And it's user editable, like Wikipedia. Running a company, the last thing Gina wanted to think about was managing her web domain. And her experience before Hover was less than pleasant. It was just terrible. And I felt bad about myself every time I gave them money. And so when Hover came along and I tried it and I saw how easy it was to use, how clean the design was, how few upsells, I moved all of my domains, which I had accumulated many over the years, over to Hover. And it's the first place I go and the first place that I recommend to anyone who is setting up a website. To get started on your big idea, head over to Hover.com and use the promo code CREATIVE to get 10% off your first purchase. Hover. Domains made simple. I have a mic here. I can pass to people with questions. Hello. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd be interested to hear some of your experiences of failure because you talked about how you know LA is always at failure, and you know, a lot of creatives mm-hmm. face that as well. And maybe some of your experiences. Okay. I love talking about my failures. Oh, there's so many too. Um, and what's the Tolstoy quote? Like, success has many parents, but failure is always an orphan. Um, which when I first heard it, I was like, I don't know what that means. And then I failed a lot, and I watched how the people around me distanced themselves from my failure, and I was like, oh, that's what he meant. Like, you put out a successful record, and everyone at your record company is like, I think I made that record. <laughs> and put out, a, put out a very unsuccessful record, and all of a sudden you show up, and you just feel that chill of, like, Oliver Twist in the orphanage. <laughs> like, um, so one of my favorite failures, and because there's early failures, which no one was really paying attention to. Like, my, I started a new wave band after I dropped out of college, and I was sleeping on my mom's couch, and I started this band, and we played our first show in a Chinese restaurant in a strip mall, and two people came, and they were forced to order food in order to stay. So we played a show to my friend Paul and his aunt, who had to eat while we, like, they, they had to eat very slowly because once they were done eating, they were going to be asked to leave. Um, but the, one of my bigger public failures was after the album Play came out, I was all filled with crazy narcissism. And we put out an album after that called 18. And I don't say we in the narcissistic royal sense. I mean, we, like me and my record company then. And the first single from the album 18 was this song, We Are All Made of Stars, and that did okay. And then we were all set for this second single called Extreme Ways. And we recorded it and made, we spent $950,000 on the video. And that's when I realized like a video should never cost more than a town in West Virginia. Um, and so we made this video and it just failed. MTV played it once at I think three o'clock in the morning. The song and the album, you know, this was after play and all of a sudden like there's all this expectation and it just, everything went like that. Uh, the, no radio, literally no radio play, no MTV play. The reviews for the record weren't that good. It was just this very, very public failure. And this is what's fascinating about the trajectory of failure is because none of us have omniscience, we can't see where failure is leading. 
And in this case, so Extreme Ways, um, then they made the first Bourne movie, and they licensed Extreme Ways for the very end of it, I think because it was so cheap. Um, like literally, they'd probably made requests to license better, more expensive songs, and they couldn't. And so they came to us and they're like, well, we don't have much money. Can we license this song? It's sure. And then the movie, which no one expected to do well, did really well. And then they made the second movie, and they were very honest with us. They said, we've tried to license other songs for the end of the second movie, but we've run out of time. Can we use your song again? And so I accidentally had this theme song for this very successful movie franchise, which had originally, the song had originally been a complete abject failure and an expensive, public, humiliating failure. So that's one of my favorite. And, but maybe I, I'm trying to think of like just a good straight up failure that doesn't have like a happy ending. <laughs> um, let me think. Oh, for a brief hubris-inspired moment, I thought I was going to become a real estate developer. <laughs> and so I bought a house in upstate New York purely with the idea of like buying it, renovating it, and selling it. And I bought it with a friend of mine. After we bought it, he became a drug addict, and he was the contractor, so he spent a couple of years not renovating it. By the time he renovated it, the market had collapsed, and we ended up years later selling it for about, I think, 30% of what we had paid for it. So it was just like, and that was just failure. That was just stupid, hubris, terrible, drug-fueled failure. <laughs> and, uh, but I guess one nice thing about failure is when you go through it, at the end, you can sort of take stock and say, oh, okay, that was a failure, and it wasn't that bad. You know, like, like my criteria for failure or the bad, the, the severity of failure is, did it involve facial tattoos? <laughs> did it involve viruses? Um, did it involve unwanted children? Or loss of limbs? And unless it's involved any of those four things, you're probably okay. All right, next question in here. I think we all think so highly of you, so my question's a little bit along the same lines. Um, you spoke about having the gift of creative freedom because of the kind of criticism you got from your family and your teachers when you were growing up. When have you not felt free creatively? When have I not felt free? Um, oddly enough, after the album Play, I had so much pressure that I had put on myself and that had been put upon me to sort of try and recreate the success of it that I wasn't as creatively and musically free as I'd been before that. You know, there's that great, the, the Chris Christopherson quote, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And at the end of the 90s, my career was a failure. Like, I didn't have a record deal. And so when I made the album play, I didn't think anyone was going to buy it or like it, and so I was completely free. And then after it, suddenly, my criteria for looking at the work I was doing wasn't just, do I like this creatively, but... Will the label like it? Will radio like it? Will other people like it? And so my, the lack of freedom, I believe, was almost wholly self-generated. And then my sort of Saul on the road to Damascus moment that changed this creative restriction was when uh, I was with David Lynch. That's name dropping, by the way. But if you're going to name drop, like name drop David Lynch. Don't name drop. It, it's not like 
oh, I was with, uh, no, I don't want to, I've, I've, I've learned, I'm trying to learn no more public feuds. I had a very public feud with Eminem a few years ago. And I, if I learned one thing, it's don't start feuds with incredibly successful musicians who are surrounded by people who carry guns. So, okay, so I'm with David Lynch in London, and he's speaking at BAFTA, the British Academy of Film, Television, and A. Um, and he, was, he has this very simple, direct way of speaking, and the journalist was really fancy. Like this very, like British public school, very clever, um, insightful questions. And the more sort of clever and insightful the journalist became, the more folksy and shut down David Lynch became. And so there's this one long question about like what his creative process is. And David Lynch's answer, he was like, well, creativity is beautiful. And it was so simple and so direct. And it just struck me. I was like, he's right. Like, none of the other things associated with creativity are beautiful, you know? I mean, marketing is interesting. Um, putting MP3s on pieces of plastic, that's interesting. Like all, um, and the way in which creative expression and output lives in the world, it's very interesting, and a lot of beauty can cre be created, but the actual, the most beautiful thing for me is the act of creative expression. And at that moment, I was like, I suddenly realized, like, why am I worried about all these aspects of the creative process that, I, that aren't beautiful? You know, why am I worried about the marketing? Why am I worried about reviews or radio play or sales? Like, those things are beyond my control. So why am I concerned about them? And I realized, like, if life is short, I should just focus on the creative process itself and trying to create things that I find to be beautiful and powerful. It doesn't mean I'm going to, but I realized that was... And now I don't remember the question. Um, this is what happens. I, I get older, I become like Grandpa Simpson. Oh, when I didn't feel free. Yeah, that's right. No, so this was... David Lynch helped me to have this emancipation sort of return me to that ostensibly unfettered creative freedom. <sighs> Uh, thank you so much for coming this morning. Thanks. Um, first off, I'm, I live in North Hollywood, and it's really cool. Oh, I... But don't move there, because... I'm not maligning... Don't move there, because I want the rents to stay cheap, so nobody come. Yeah. I like it. So, anyway. I, in no I way, I don't, I, not, nor, I don't need public feuds with musicians, <laughs> nor do I need geographic feuds with different areas of L.A. So no worry, I, no guns. I love North Hollywood. <laughs> okay, great. So, um... My question was, and you may have answered it in some ways actually already, um, I was curious for those of us who probably, who may not have had all that supportive upbringing, so those voices coming from the past, or maybe you've picked them up yourself now and are telling them to yourself, how do you, uh, do you have any insights, not necessarily advice, but insights on how to get that part to just shut up just long enough for you to sit down and write the whatever, or paint, or like, do the work, like you were just a, saying. It's a great question. Um, and uh, the only thing I can compare it to is some other issues in my life where I've had, like, insidious internal negative voices, so insidious that I'm not even aware of them. 
And luckily, there are a lot of skill sets you can learn to both like identify the negative voices, whether it's good meditation practices, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, is really remarkable for like unearthing these negative thoughts. So you unearth the negative thoughts, you become aware of them, and then hopefully slowly work on just sort of taking away their power. You know, becoming aware of them when they come up. You know, when a negative thought comes up, just simply saying, oh, that's a negative thought. And if you challenge it empirically, challenge it with evidence, it sort of defangs the negative thought. You know, like if, if someone has a thought of like, oh, I'm unattractive and no one loves me. That's an easy, powerful negative thought to hold on to. But if you then look at it, you're like, oh, but, well, I've had a good dating life and those people seem to love me. All of a sudden, it's like the negative thought shrinks under that, that light of empirical scrutiny. Um, and, and then Albert Ellis, who is the, the sort of the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy, his mantra was practice, meaning like every good thing that involves progress involves daily maintenance and daily work. You know, it's not like, it's not like I floss my teeth in January and I'm done for the next five years, you know, or like, oh, I exercised in 1997, therefore I don't need to do it again. You know, like it's developing a practice that helps you to sort of quiet the negative thoughts and doing it consistently. I mean, like in a perfect world, we wouldn't have the negative thoughts, but we have them. And so it's sort of like, and then, and you can also be very self-critical for having critic, self-critical thoughts. You know, like, I'm so fucking stupid, why am I so fucking stupid? You know, like, <laughs> like if you weren't so fucking stupid, you wouldn't be so fucking stupid. Um, and it's having a degree of gentleness towards yourself. And also understanding every person on the planet who's not a sociopath has self-doubt and has self-criticism. You know, and so there's ideally should be a sense of solidarity where you say like, oh, I'm being self-critical, so is everyone. And, you know, realizing that a lot of us put on a brave face when we go out into the world, but in private, we're all racked with all different forms of self-doubt. Yeah, but, um, like I said, I'm so surprised that so many people turned out for this. I profoundly hope I haven't wasted your time. Um, yeah, thank you all so much for coming out to this. And... Um, thanks for Creative Mornings for organizing these great events. So, thank you so much. You can watch this talk and others on the theme of freedom at creativemornings.com. Like last week, since we weren't able to Skype with the speaker, I'm putting our Creative Mornings chapter host on the spot with our question, how do you challenge yourself creatively? So, once again, here's John Setson. How do, how do I challenge myself creatively? I think it's sort of, that's a really good question. I'll give you I'll give you two answers. One is sort of more of the dream world, and the other is kind of more the reality. I feel like as I get older, and I'm my creative job is more in the realm of management and mentorship. Like I try and focus a lot of my creative energy on developing the people that that work with me. You know, like the younger people that work with me, and and challenging myself to spend enough time helping them with their skills as I do with worrying about art direction for photo shoots and things like that. So that's kind of a new like way of thinking for me. And in the more sort of practical sense, right now I'm challenging myself to draw more. And I had this idea of drawing pictures of 
people's glasses of people I know that wear glasses and like kind of making like a photo album where I only have drawn their glasses. And so their glasses are really hard to draw and I'm not a great illustrator. So I'm drawing the same pair of glasses over like 200 times to try and get like the frames right and things like that. So that's kind of a good challenge. That's probably like one of those projects where I may finish it in six years or something. I think the challenge is making new challenges, right? So at work, like, I can, how many more photo shoots can I art direct in my lifetime? But it's kind of like this idea of growing people is is interesting for me. And then it's getting back to some of the skills that I wish I'd be better at. Right on, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to step in and do this call with me. It was really my pleasure. Okay, cool. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yep, bye. Bye. Hey, we've only got one episode left this season, so this is the last time for a while that I'll bug you to head over to the iTunes podcasting page and leave us a rating and review. Thanks. Next week, I'm so excited to say we're finishing out this season with the founder of IDEO, David Kelly. So much of the world is focused on problem solving, and we're good at that, and we should keep working on problem solving, but we really believe that the designer's task is trying to understand what's a problem that's worth working on, what's a non-obvious need that's out there in the world, and then we'll innovate around that. Our thanks to Moby, John Setson, and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Maeve, my niece, from Framingham, Massachusetts. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com.